So here we are in the middle of John chapter 8. If you remember last week, um, we talked about the story of a woman that was caught in adultery that the Pharisees and scribes dragged before Jesus in the temple. Uh, And we went through that story and saw some truths about Jesus and the mercy that he gives, the pardon that he offers to sinners. Uh, But we also talked about the fact that that story was probably not written by John and actually was inserted into John's gospel sometime later, like in the mid, uh, almost in the early medieval period. So um, what that that means for the narrative of John is that John's gospel really goes straight from verse 52 of chapter 7 to chapter 8, verse 12, where we pick up today. And you'll see that they flow very nicely together. And the story of the woman in adultery kind of was inserted in the middle of it. But as we, before we begin telling this uh, the story or, or pursuing where we, ha- where we are in the narrative and, and what Jesus is presenting here, I want to invite you, this will be a little weird, maybe a little uncomfortable, I want to invite you to close your eyes for a minute and imagine life without light. Imagine a world where there is no light, where light does not exist. Maybe you're lying in bed and you're hungry, it's time to eat, so you're going to get up and you're going to go down the stairs and you're going to make your way to the kitchen and you're going to find food to eat, but there's no light. It's pitch black. How do you get there? How many things do you bump into along the way? It's time to go to work now. You're out the door, you're in your car. Wait, do cars exist in a world without light? How do I get to work? How many accidents will there be along the way? All right, you can open your eyes. So this is the kind of world, the kind of life spiritually that each of us experiences apart from Christ. In our passage today, Jesus is going to declare himself to be the light of the world. And in a spiritual sense, the world is in darkness without the light that Jesus comes to bring. And as ridiculous as it sounds to drive to work or to go downstairs and make breakfast with complete darkness, with the complete inability to see anything around you, Uh, That is spiritually the kind of situation that we are in until God mercifully, miraculously intervenes and brings light to our darkened souls. So I'm going to invite you to follow along with me as I read verses 12 through 20. We'll read these verses right now and talk about that, and then we'll read the second uh, chunk of these verses from 21 down through verse 30. So verse Beginning in verse 12 of John chapter 8, Jesus says these words. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. 
Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So if you recall the context of John chapter 7, we are still in the midst of the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles taking place in Jerusalem where the the people of Israel uh, make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem and the farmers have set up tents out in the fields to protect their crops and to live there for this period of time. And during these seven days, they're uh, doing various ceremonies, a water ceremony, a lighting ceremony, these things that point to God as the source of their provision and of their life and of their salvation. And at the beginning of John chapter 7, or the middle of John chapter 7, Jesus stood up in the midst of, on the last day of the Feast of Booths, in the midst of this water ceremony where they were pouring water onto the altar and, and picturing the provision and the salvation of God. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart, rivers of living water will flow. And so Jesus proclaims, all of these rituals and ceremonies are pointing to me. They find their fulfillment in me. I am their point and their purpose and their end. And so that was a very bold proclamation that he made about himself, and it began this argument, this back and forth that continues into chapter 8 where we pick up today. And so this really ought to be seen as happening in the very same setting, probably on the same day as what we saw in John chapter 7, where he proclaimed himself to be the source of living water, and there was some who believed him and some who were not sure, and then the Pharisees and scribes who opposed him and wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't because his time had not yet come, and so God sovereignly uh, forbade them from uh, arresting Jesus. And so there's this argument going back and forth, and so we come to verse 12 of chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, And then we have this precious, bright promise from Jesus. And in the the text today, in the, the, the words that Jesus shares, we're going to see a bright promise and a dark warning, hand in hand. And I think we'll see mercy and grace through both of those things. And so the first thing he offers is this bright promise, very famous words, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So let's take this promise, this statement, one piece at a time. First of all, light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. There's a few ways that that image of himself as the light of the world would have, would have sat with or landed upon his hearers at this time. First of all, it would call back to the days of uh, the the people of Israel having been led out of slavery in Egypt back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And they they found themselves wandering and looking for a, a land to live in. And in Exodus 13, verse 21, it says, 
the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And so during the time that the people of Israel were first coming into their own identity and have left slavery behind them, God led them literally through the wilderness by providing light through this fire, this pillar of fire uh, during the nighttime. And so Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, kind of harkens back to God leading his people through the darkness by fire, by providing this light. And so there's, there's an echo of that. God, just as God led the people of Israel in the darkness, I am come to provide light and leadership and guidance to my people. The more immediate uh, way that the people would have heard this would have to do with the context of the Feast of Booths. When the Feast of Booths was instituted by God uh, under the Old Covenant, um, if you'll, you don't have to look there, but I'm going to turn to Leviticus chapter 24. This is the giving of the law. And in Leviticus 24, when God is telling the people of Israel that they will they are to perform these rituals of the, the Feast of Booths. Here are some, some of the instructions concerning the lighting of lamps for the Feast of Booths. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 24 of Leviticus says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. And the idea there was continual light that was to be given off by these lamps during the Feast of Booths. So again, this week-long festival where they've been doing this water ceremony and all that, there's also an ever-present source of light in the temple where there's this lampstand and the priests are supposed to make sure that that light never goes out, that that torch, if you will, continues to burn and to provide light as a symbol for God's guidance and God's presence with his people. So again, just like he did with the water ceremony and said, if you're thirsty, come to me and living water will come from his heart. In the very same way, in the presence in the temple, it says in verse uh, 20, that he, was, he said he's in the treasury of the temple. So he's in the midst of the temple where this lampstand would be shining. And he stands more or less beside this lamp and says, I am the light of the world. So once again, he takes an image that the people of Israel have used for centuries, for generations, as a way of looking forward to the coming of Messiah and a way of looking upward to the guidance and provision of God, the presence of God. And he says, I am the light of the world. This light is just a glimpse of my presence and the light that I have come to bring. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 9 verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. So the presence of light, the interruption of light into darkness was a common theme for the people of Israel 
uh, in the time looking forward to the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. And now Jesus stands in their midst and says, I'm here. The light has come. I am the light of the world. It also reminds me that Jesus gives spiritual light to darkened eyes. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes these words about those who do not yet know Christ, who do not yet believe. And he says that in the case of those who don't believe and who don't know God, in their case, the God of this world, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so Paul even speaks of the good news about Jesus in the sense of, in the language of, light shining into darkness. He continues, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, I think hearkening back to Genesis 1, let there be light, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So our spiritual state, apart from the revelation of God, the knowledge of Jesus, is darkness. It is blindness. That is where we live, spiritually speaking, until God gives light to the heart so that we can see the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so I think all of these things and probably more are wrapped up in this statement of Jesus. I am the light of the world. Just as God led the people of Israel in the night with this pillar of fire, I am come to give guidance and leadership to my people. Just as these lamps Uh, in the lighting ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles are a picture of God's presence and the light that he brings. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. All of the things that the people of Israel had done for thousands of years up to this point have met their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And a new thing is happening. And he gives spiritual sight to blinded hearts and blinded eyes. When someone comes to faith in Jesus, when someone who is not a Christian comes to the point of recognizing Jesus as Savior and Lord and inviting him into their lives, there is a, there's a dawning. You can almost see it sometimes, a dawning of light where old perspectives on life start to change and to shift. And where old assumptions about how we're to live and how we're to relate to other people start to, to change. And this new identity that God gives to a sinner through faith in Jesus starts to to live itself out. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Maybe you've had the joy of walking somebody through that process and seeing the light start to come on. That is the way that God works in sinners who are lost and in darkness by shining a light into their hearts. I am the light of the world. Also notice that he says, I am the light of the world. He doesn't say, I am a light in the world. I am one of several lights in the world. I am the light of the world. That is a definite 
statement and by nature an exclusive statement. There is not spiritual light to be found anywhere else. No matter how sincere, no matter how earnest, no matter how serious a person is about spiritual life outside of Jesus, it's not there. It's not to be found. There is no spiritual light to be found apart from Jesus Christ. I think he's essentially saying here, the only one, I am the only light, there is no other. If anyone in the world will have light, it will be through Jesus Christ. If we will have spiritual light, it will come from him. And so if we pursue it anywhere else, if we pursue it in another religion or another system of belief or a a ritual or habits that we form for ourselves or uh, self-improvement or self-help or whatever, we're not going to find spiritual light in any other place or any other person than in Jesus Christ. And then he follows that statement, that declaration with a beautiful, bright promise. Look at the second half of this statement. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a beautiful promise. The light of life. John himself has already connected Jesus to light back in the prologue of his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, speaking of the Word who became flesh, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or not understood it. Then down to verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The light of Jesus Christ is only for those who willingly embrace him as Savior and Lord. That's what he's saying here. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is here. Jesus is offering light. Jesus is offering his presence. He's offering guidance. He's offering a future. But it comes down to those first couple of words of the second sentence. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The offer is there. Will you come and receive spiritual light and life. His light was the life of men. And I think that the light of the world, here one more statement about this and then we'll continue in the passage, but I think the the statement here and the image of Jesus being the light of the world contrasts very starkly with what Jesus himself said back in chapter 3 when he was speaking with Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to him by night, interestingly. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The world is hates light. People who live outside of faith in Christ hate the light that he brings because it exposes our darkness. It exposes our sin and our weaknesses and the things that we're holding on to that we'd rather not anybody take away from us. 
or the sins that we're hiding that we'd rather not anybody find out about. We don't like light shining on our darkness because it exposes our wickedness. And so Jesus contrasts the light that he brings into the world and the spiritual life that is connected to that with the natural state of human beings, which is we're in darkness and we love it. And until God shines the light of the gospel into our blind souls, that is where we remain. So the invitation is there, the offer is there. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If, you're gonna, if you'll follow me, if you'll come to me, if you'll trust in me, you won't walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. It comes down to how we respond to that invitation. Will we follow him? Will we embrace him as Lord and as Savior? Well, so clearly this statement is not going to sit well with the Pharisees and scribes and those who are convinced that he is a blasphemer, one who is uh, setting himself up as equal with God and worthy of uh, stoning or execution because of that. And so he's made a bold statement about himself once again. And so the Pharisees, verse 13, said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And this picks up the exact argument that they made back in chapter 5, actually, after Jesus had healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. He began to speak of himself as coming from God and being one with the Father and all this. And they said, your testimony isn't true because it comes from yourself. And so Jesus began to call all these other witnesses. The scriptures bear witness about me. The Father bears witness. John the Baptist has borne witness, right? So this is really just a, a recap of the same old stuff. They have nothing new to levy at him. And so they say again, well, you, you're saying that about yourself. So you must not be speaking the truth or we can't trust your testimony is essentially what they're saying. In a legal sense, we can't admit your testimony uh, to the record because you are testifying about yourself. And the law requires that there are at least two witnesses for any testimony to be confirmed. And so Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I am going. So again, I'm from God, right? I was with the Father in heaven and he sent me here. I know that I came from God, that I was in heaven and that God sent me here. So I know what I say is true. But even then he kind of acquiesces. He kind of throws them a bone and says, but it's not just me. It's not only my testimony because the father himself bears witness about me down in verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. So he says, there are two. There's myself, my own testimony, and there's God the father's testimony about myself. And in this section, he continues to, to, to point out how connected Jesus and God the Father are. So he says there in verse 14 that uh, he's come from, you don't know where I've come from or where I'm going, implying I came from heaven, I came from the Father. In verse 16, he says that I and the Father judge together. I don't judge with my own judgment, I judge with what the Father tells me. So there's this connectedness of understanding and of purpose in judging which is the, God alone has the authority to judge in this sense. Uh, he says in verse 18 that the Father bears witness about me. And in verse 19, it gets even more pointed because they say, well, where is your father? They don't recognize who he's talking about. Well, let's, let's hear from your dad. Let's let him testify to us. And Jesus says, you don't know my father or me. Because who's his father? God, God the Father. You don't know him. 
just as he said to them back in John chapter 5, if you knew him, you would recognize me because I'm from him. And he says it the same thing in kind of the reverse order here in verse 19. If you knew me, you would know my father because we're so connected. I am such the, the reflection of Jesus, the image of God, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians that we just read. I am the reflection of God the Father in such a way that if you know me and you recognize me, you know the Father. You see and receive him as well. So Jesus continues just to draw these strong bonds and to, and to show them I and the Father are one and connected to one another. Of course, they don't accept that. And we know that these claims that Jesus is making are outrageous to the Jewish leaders because John tells us in verse 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. They didn't not, they, they weren't, uh, excuse me, no one arrested him not because they started to see the truth in what he was saying or because they weren't angry about it anymore, but because they were not able to, because God sovereignly just put a boundary around that, said, nope. You can't arrest him right now. Just like they've been trying to do all throughout chapter 7. They tried to arrest him, but no one was able to seize him. And then they sent police after him to try to arrest him, and they were too impressed by him to arrest him. And no one's ever spoken like this, they said. And so now, once again, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Which hour? The hour appointed by God for Jesus to be handed over to sinners to be crucified. Not yet. God says, not yet. So we know that they wanted to arrest him. They believed that he deserved to be executed for these statements because he was claiming equality with God and claiming that these, Jewish, these ancient Jewish rituals associated with the Feast of Booths found their fulfillment in him. So they want to arrest him, they want to kill him, but they can't do it because their hour has not yet come. So in the second uh, portion of this conversation, Jesus is going to mercifully, patiently speak to them again. And verse 21 begins with those words. I'll read verses 21 down through verse 30. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus has offered the bright promise of light. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And he's going to follow that bright promise with a dark warning. In verse 21 and verse 24, I am going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. And he said again, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now the word he there where it says I am he, it's actually not even there in the Greek. So our English translations have sort of tried to soften this or make it smoother by adding the pronoun he. Really what he says literally is unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. And I am was the covenant name of God under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. So when God introduced himself, as if you will, to Moses and told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go and all that, Moses said, well, who will I tell them sent me? And he said, tell them I am sent you. The, the, the Hebrew verb Yahweh, which just means being, to be. So God gives himself the name I am. And that is how the people of Israel have known him to this very day. That is how they recognize the name of God is Yahweh, which is I am. So when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin, he's making a subtle to not so subtle identification of himself with the very God of Israel, the very God of the universe. Now, words like this, if you don't believe, you're going to die in your sins, they sit uncomfortably with us. Sounds awfully harsh. Sounds awfully narrow. Sounds very almost cruel. Why, why would you say, why would you be so belittling to somebody? Why would you be so brash and bold as to tell somebody that they're going to die in their sins if they don't believe? How in the world could you make statements like that? But the truth is, if we're looking a little bit more closely, there's mercy in this promise. It really is a promise. It's a warning. There's mercy in this warning. It's just like if you were to go to the doctor and you had a serious illness in your body, and the doctor did some tests, and he found out about it, if he decided, you know what, it's really going to hurt his feelings if I tell him that he's got this life-threatening illness going on. It's going to make him really uncomfortable and scared, and I, I don't want to bother him and his family. I don't want to upend their lives with like, bad news like this, so I'm just, I'm just going to tell him he's okay, and I'll see you again in a couple of years. That doctor doesn't hold his license very long, does he? You cannot do that if you're a doctor. Your job is to tell the patient what the bad news is so that you can address it, right? If Jesus did not warn sinners that judgment is coming and that they're going to die in their sins, he's no better, and in fact, he's infinitely worse than a doctor who knows you've got cancer but refuses to tell you because he doesn't want to hurt your feelings. Jesus is merciful to these Pharisees and to us to extend a word of warning like this. If you continue on this path, if you remain in unbelief, if you don't accept me as from God and the one who alone will bear sins and pay for them and bring you back to God, if you don't accept me as the light of the world, you're going you're to die in your sins. 
John told us back in John chapter 3, John the Baptist told us in chapter 3 verse uh, toward the end of the chapter, he said, everyone who does not, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If the wrath of God remains on you because you're in your sin and you die in your sin, to use Jesus' phrase, the wrath of God is what you have waiting. That's bad news. You'll face the wrath of God if you don't change what you believe, if you don't embrace Jesus as light and Lord and Savior. That's what Jesus is saying to them here. If you continue in your unbelief, you will die in your sins and you will face the wrath of God. This is not a pretty picture. This is worse infinitely than a cancer diagnosis. This is eternal judgment and separation from God. And so he tells them, if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And he said, you can't come where I'm coming. And they go, well, does that mean he's going to kill himself? Clearly don't understand. What he means when he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, is I'm going back to heaven. I'm going to a cross, I'm going to rise from the dead, and then I'm going to ascend to heaven to be with my Father again, and you don't get to come with me because you don't believe, because you don't know me and you don't embrace me as Lord and as light. And they said, so who are you? And Jesus said, I've been telling you this all along, right? Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I've made it pretty plain. I am one with the Father. I'm from the Father. I am the light of the world. Like, just get it already, right? But they don't. It, it doesn't sink in. It doesn't quite get there. So they argue a little bit. Who are you? Jesus said, I've been telling you from the beginning. My judgment is true. I declare to the world what I've heard from the Father. They didn't understand that he was speaking about the Father. So, Jesus kind of goes, all right, let me lay it out for you. Verse 28, look at this. So, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Same sentence there without the word he, I am. Then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So, there's a time coming when they will know. He says to these Pharisees who do not believe in him, there is a day when you will know. What is that day? It is when you have lifted up the Son of Man. And I believe he's not only referring there to his crucifixion, which he's used that language already back in John 3, uh, just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and everyone who looks on him will have eternal life. He's speaking of his crucifixion, but I think he's looking even beyond that to his resurrection and to his ascension back to heaven when he is fully glorified. I think he's saying... When I am on my throne, when all of this is said and done and I've been raised and I've been, I've been reunited with my Father in heaven, there's coming a day when you will recognize that I am who I said I am, that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah, that I am the light of the world. There's coming a day when you'll recognize it, but it may be too late. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives this picture of 
the humility of Jesus by taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. And then on the back end of that humbling of Jesus comes this great exaltation of Jesus. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the deal. There's a day coming when every knee will bow to Jesus Christ as Lord. When every tongue, every mouth will confess your Lord. The question is, will we bow the knee to Jesus and recognize Him as the Lord gladly, willingly, humbly now? Or will we be counted among those who refuse to see, refuse to believe, refuse to accept it, And then one day when Jesus is revealed in all his glory, we see there's no argument and we confess he is who he said he is, but it's too late. It's too late to be found resting in him because the invitation has gone unanswered and warnings unheeded for so long. So that question, I think, comes to each of us. Will we recognize Jesus as the light of the world? Will we embrace Him as the source of spiritual life and the source of eternal hope and a future? Or will we stubbornly insist that He's a madman or He's not who He says He is? Or, well, I think there's some interesting things about Jesus, but I'm not willing to buy all of that Son of God stuff or whatever. Will we remain in our unbelief and die in our sins? That's what Jesus tells us is going to happen. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The good news from this passage is that in verse 30, it tells us that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. It doesn't say as he was performing miracles, many believed in him. He wasn't doing anything impressive at this point. There were no acts of power going on. They were just talking. It's just this argument back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. But as he was speaking, many people believed. Because that's how people come to believe. That's how faith comes. It comes through the word of God, the message about Jesus clearly displayed. And God shining a light into the heart of an unbeliever that he might see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's how it happens. So the message is out there. The message is plain. There is life to be found in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness available to you for your sins, however heinous or long the list is. Just as we saw the woman in adultery last week cast before Jesus and the Pharisees wanted to stone her, eventually all the accusers left and Jesus said, where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and 
sin no more. Jesus offers pardon for sins. Jesus offers light to blinded eyes, blinded hearts, to blinded and dead souls. Jesus offers life to the dead spiritually. But we have to come. We have to receive it. We have to acknowledge it. The message is there and our um, responsibility, if you will, is to receive it and to embrace it and to say, I don't have anything to bring to God. The old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And that's exactly the posture that we have to take if we're going to come to God and accept this gift of light and life that he offers. I'll close with an old hymn by Fanny Crosby who wrote uh, some thousands of, of poems and hymns in the 19th century. She was blind. She was blinded as an infant. She wrote a hymn called Take the World But Give Me Jesus. And here's a few of the stanzas from that hymn. Take the world but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching o'er me, I can sing though billows roll. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Let me view his constant smile. Then throughout my pilgrim journey, light will cheer me all the while. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross, my trust shall be. Till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see.